Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Even on a budget, quality is non-negotiable. That's why Quince is the place to score high-end essentials at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Get your hands on buttery soft cashmere sweaters from just 60 bucks, Italian leather jackets, and so much more. And the best part about Quince, they exclusively partner with factories committed to safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Elevate your style without the elevated price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns. All right, all right, here we go. Hey, welcome back, everybody. Another episode of A Little More Good. Bringing the goodness into your earbuds uh, one week at a time. Always. We've got Always, uh, yeah. another goodie lined up for this week. Uh, yeah. You know, on a theme that's been pretty central to this podcast and I think will be central to our lives moving forward uh, and, and moving backwards, really. <laughs> yeah. Um, we sat down with uh, climate activist, climate author, Arno Kopetsky. Yeah. This... Some would say the Wayne Gretzky of climate climate action climate yeah change. so good it was so fun to catch up with him and hear some of his stories i mean obviously he's a writer he's written three three books the award-winning um, book the oil man in the sea he's got another one called the devil's curve journeying into the power and profit at the amazon's edge and this one that we we talked a lot about his most recent book the environmentalist dilemma promise and peril in an age of climate crisis like this guy writes stories and the theme, the central theme is the climate. And yeah, he's a, he's a journalist, writer, climate activist. So it was really great to have that conversation with him. And his writing super approachable too. I almost find it's like, uh, how Malcolm Gladwell will, will make an incredible point through storytelling and this like weaving tapestry of, of connecting all of these points and, and, and times. I think, I feel like Arno, um, does a similar thing an environmentalist dilemma, like taking us through all these scenarios, kind of how we got here, um, the dilemmas and and the actions that we need to kind of be considering to to live in a a climate safe world for for us and our future generations. And I think it's it's a must read for for anyone that's concerned, which should be everybody about our our planet. But it's it's an enjoyable read. Like it's not like a doom and gloom book. It's like uh, it's a story about our climate and um, kind of the history of of how we got here and and hopefully how we can improve things. That's right. Yeah, that's the the promise. 
in the peril, right? Yeah. Like we're we're not we're not so far gone yet. Like there's things can be done, and you know, there's fun things that you can do. Yeah. To support the climate, doesn't have to be all doom. You can bring a lot of passion and and purpose into it. That's right. Um, funny how we met Arno. Um, my wife and I, Megan, we uh, we were at. Uh, South community for having our first child, Finn, um, their, their midwifery program. And, uh, his wife, Kieran, um, runs the, the South, South family program. Um, so, you know, we were checking in on, you know, the size of, of Megan's, Megan's pregnancy and how everything was going. And she was talking about her husband and his writing and how, she thought I would like it. And yeah. Turns out he's this amazing author. So it was, it was kind of a cool connection. Totally. Yes. So good. All right. Before we let things roll, Dean, we've got a lot of big things happening this week. Really big things. Big things. What's on, what's on the docket? Well, this weekend, June 4th and 5th, if you're listening in real time, we have the Planted Expo is back. It's back, baby. And like better than ever. Better than ever. Yes. Yeah. So first things first, if you haven't grabbed a ticket to the Planted Expo, you're going to want to do it. Um, check out plantedlife.com slash Vancouver. It will take you there and you can grab yourself some tickets through the show pass link. Um, super affordable for the weekend to get there. They are lot. There's so many vendors and samples. You will eat, eat any value <laughs> of ticket price in samples. And then, I mean, there's just so many great vegan vendors, speakers, uh, people to listen to things to check out. Um, yeah, amazing, amazing sponsors and food and just people doing cool stuff that are all there, part of this Planted Expo weekend. Um, we The last one we were at was incredible. It's just Amazing. so well done down at the Vancouver Convention Center, kind of Vancouver's like green, greenest building. Um, yeah, really excited to be down there this weekend. And there's a few like kind of events surrounding the whole Planted weekend that are equally exciting and awesome. Yes, I definitely recommend that you sign up for everything because this is such a special event um steven and the team are creating something extremely amazing for vancouver and for the plant-based community or plant curious community um the speakers are next level the vendors are next level i think i just like i'm excited to kind of take it all in um so expo aside these kind of side events that you spoke of dean what's going on friday night friday night is the scott jurek ultra fun run which is going to be so amazing. It's uh, in partnership with Brooks, the juice truck, Vancouver running company, and of course, planted expo. So Scott Jurek, if you don't know, is an incredible athlete, an ultra runner, ultra marathoner, um, vegan, and has really like kind of set the bar in terms of performance and what you can do and ability as a, as a plant-based athlete, like even before it was kind of more, commonplace right it was like pre-game changers he was changing the game pre-game changers and so this uh, Scott Jurek ultra fun run is happening on the Friday night on the June 3rd you can grab tickets to it the tickets are awesome you get a shirt uh, some juice you get to run with um, Scott around the Vancouver 
uh, you know, the, our, our beautiful Stanley Park, scenic, one of the most scenic runs in Vancouver. It's like an 8K route, so it's approachable. It's not an ultra run. It's for, you know, it's something for everyone. Ultra, ultra fun run. Ultra fun. Yeah. And there's good times and that's, running. That's right. This is, this is the run for you. 25 bucks uh, is your mission to, to run and uh, have, have some juice at the end of the event. For 35 bucks, you get the, the run. It's a copy of Scott Jurek's book, which is awesome. T-shirt and, of course, a delicious, refreshing juice truck. Juice just for you. And here's a few of Scott's accolades. Um, he's one of the central characters of, of my favorite book, Born to Run. Mm-hmm. Uh, incredible book. I think it's it's one of my favorite all-time books. Uh, you don't even have to be into running to to you know get a ton out of it uh he's won ba- uh, bad water twice he's won hard rock 100 he's won the uh western states 100 mile endurance run six times um he's got a ton of ftp's fastest known time i believe he holds holds the fastest known time for the appalachians uh, i could be wrong but i'm pretty sure yeah um, he's been a vegan since 1999. Oh, gee. Which is crazy. Um, and he's got some really amazing books. Uh, oh, he won the Diaz Vista twice here. That's a local amazing. one, yeah. Local one. He won it in 2000, 2003. If you go on his Wikipedia, he's like pretty much won every major ultra race out there, all on a vegan diet. Just eating plants. So uh, he's got some amazing books too. Eat and Run, His Unlikely Journey to Ultra Marathon Greatness, which goes all through his vegan diet. Uh, his r- most recent book, North, Finding Finding His Way Through the Running the Appalachian Trail. Uh, both awesome, awesome books. And like I mentioned, Born to Run. So, I mean, honestly, this guy's, in my books, he's one of like the top five runners of all time. And the fact that, one, he's done it all on a vegan diet. And two, he's running here in Vancouver and you can run with him. So cool. Get a selfie, get his book. Have some Q&A, mid-run. Yeah. So you're going to want to check it out. Uh, the tickets for this are on the Planted Expo website. Just just uh, go to the main website, scroll down, you'll see it. The Scott Jurek Ultra Fun Run event. Click on the link and it'll take you to where you can grab your tickets. Sign up, 6 p.m. on Friday. We're going to get running from the Jackpool Plaza down by the Olympic Cauldron there right next to the convention center where the whole planted weekend kicks off. And if that's not enough to make the weekend absolutely epic, I feel like it's like a one of those cheesy information infomercials. But wait, there's, uh, there's more. more. There's more. That's not it. <laughs> Tell us what the people get, Zach. Okay, we have a VIP dinner at Nightshade with a live podcast with us. Hey. A little more good. Me and dinner. Featuring? The Seaspiracy creator, Ali Tabrizi. Amazing. Seaspiracy uh, from the producers of Cowspiracy. Um, unbelievable documentary on the state of the oceans, on the state of of the, the um, you know, animals that live in the ocean, the sharks, the fish, the, the whales. And yeah. what's happening both from an environmental impact, but also just like the state of, of the animals and, and the impact it has on us. Uh, incredible, incredible, eye-opening, life-changing documentary. So we'll be sitting down and doing a live podcast with Ellie. But there's also uh, a dinner from Nightshade to go with it. So there's two, there's two seatings. That's right. First seating uh, is five to seven, and there's no podcast during that one. Just amazing food from Nightshade, um, and the second seating at seven thirty includes the the live podcast with with us. So 
It's going to be a fun weekend. There's so much going on. Dinner dinner and a show. Dinner and a show. Maybe, yeah. maybe we'll get Dean to sing a song or two. <laughs> Bring <laughs> we'll out the old see. ukulele. Yeah, we'll see. We'll see. Maybe the banjo. Ooh, I've been known to play the old banjo here banjo and there. Banjo on your knee. But yeah, you guys don't... Uh, don't wait on this. Grab your tickets. Just grab them for the weekend, June 4th, June 5th. You can go both days. Um, amazing. Like I say, there's amazing samples, vendors, speakers, uh, and and be there Friday night for the Scott Jurek Ultra Fun Run event. And of course, uh, Sunday evening, come down to Nightshade, have some amazing, delicious plant-based food, and uh, hear, hear a rad conversation with someone who's doing amazing work. Ali Tabrizi, creator of Seaspiracy, Cowspiracy. You don't want to miss it. This is a weekend. It's going to be one for the books. There's even more. I mean, we could go on for a while. We're we're on a, a plant-based running panel it's with true. Aaron Ireland uh, and a few others. Sean Hamilton. Sean Hamilton. Friend of the pod. Friend of the pod. Um, Akeem Pierre will also be speaking. Oh, yes. Uh, he's speaking on Sunday. Also friend of the pod. Yeah. It's just like... Uh, it's, from morning to night, there are amazing things happening all weekend at Planted Expo. Make sure you get your tickets. Uh, the next one won't be until next year. So that's right. It's we're kind of we're kind of spoiled because they're they're this year because of COVID and all of the kind of stuff. They were you know relatively close, and I feel like I'm just just coming off the November event, and now it's like we're back into it, and I'm so glad. And it's going to be a long wait till next spring for the next Planted one, but well worth it. Well worth the wait. So get there. Planted Life for your tickets. Get them through Show Pass. And uh, we'll see you there. There we go. Yeah. All right. Let's let this week's episode roll. Yes. Arno Kopetsky, everybody. All right. All right. We're sitting here with uh, Arno Kopetsky today. Thanks for joining us, Arno. Psyched to be here, guys. Yeah. It's, yeah. it's good to have you with us. Uh, Canadian author, environmental journalist, writer of um, a few books. One of them, oh, the award-winning, uh, Zach has it here in front of us, The Oil Man and the Sea, Navigating the Northern Gateway. Something I think we'll chat about. You are just talking a little bit about the adventures that, that birthed this book. Yeah, that's Sounds right. amazing. And yeah. of course, you have another one, your first book, The Devil's, Cur- uh, Devil's Curve, right? That's right. A Journey into Power and Profit mm-hmm. in the Amazon's Edge. And most recently, you've written The Environmentalist Dilemma promise and peril in the age of climate crisis so good to have you with us all the thoughts about humanity and the environment and adventure and our present moment and our future our collective future so uh thankful for you and your uh sharing your time with us here this morning man it's an honor to be here and uh, i've been looking forward to it for a while there's lots lots going on in oh the my, world these days isn't oh there yeah. isn't let's, there. See, let's see if we can unpack it let's and, let's and get, get to the bottom of get it to all some here promise by the end. <laughs> solve some problems <laughs> through today? the peril yeah let's yeah. Through the power, power through the peril and yeah, get into the promise Lord three, three, three heads together we can, can solve solve the problems of the world mm-hmm. at least discuss them um one one thing you talk about in this book and i've i've heard you speak about uh at length and other podcasts is uh climate change being the the greatest story of of this generation yeah can can you kind of uh sure unpack that that and say why uh you know so i i actually see climate change as as sort of an organizing principle almost um of of a much larger sort of cascade of environmental issues that are going on Uh, but for me for all you know pretty much since i started paying attention to the world uh, the story of our times and our generation always struck me as humanity's relationship with the earth and 
this unraveling of the biosphere that's happening all around us. I mean, I grew up in the 80s and 90s, and kind of one of the first major news events that I became aware of was the cod collapse of the cod on the east coast right and that you know we just ate them all suddenly there was no more cod and um you know and that was just one of so many you know we've we've all grown up hearing about whales and the amazon rainforest and uh you you name it we were just chatting before this we started recording about uh, the fraser river here in vancouver and how salmon are going the same way as the cod went uh and that's just been happening all over the place and then all of that was happening before climate change even really started kicking in, even though climate change has, of course, been building for a century now. And so now along comes climate change and all of these ecosystems are all have been crashing hard for, you know, many decades now. And then climate change comes along and tips everything over in a, in a thousand different ways, you know, and, and uh, nobody needs me to tell them about the floods and the fires that have been happening, I think those of us who live in BC just got a, a pretty intense crash course in climate change in the second half of 2021 with the heat dome and then the forest fires and then the floods, just three back to back to back, really striking climate catastrophes. Mm -hmm. And each one of those was a climate catastrophe, but they were also examples of how climate change uh, sort of adds fuel to the fires, so to speak, of, of pre-existing conditions. And, and in BC's case, logging was, was really a big one, uh, both with, you know, Lytton spontaneously combusting and then the forest fires that happened and then the floods. BC's has, you know, we've been, we've been clear-cutting this province and suppressing fire, uh, which is a natural part of, of how these ecosystems replenish and, and, and have normally functioned. Uh, so that combination of clear cutting and then planting these homogenous sort of industrial tree farms and then suppressing fire for a century has made all of these forests way more prone to fire. And it has, you know, really destabilized mountain slopes and made them more prone to flood and, and, and landslides. And, and so then when climate change kicks in and you've got this warm atmosphere that's, you know, we're now, it doesn't sound like much, 1.2 degrees warmer than than we were 250 years ago. But what that translates into is these enormous rain, what do they call them, atmospheric rivers. Yeah. And, and these, you know, these, you know, two, we go like two or three months without rain in the summer in Vancouver now. And, and that, those conditions are throughout the province. And so you've, it just sets off all of these perfect storms. Um, and so that's my rambling introduction to <laughs> climate change and, and how I see it as, you know, you, we say climate change and I think often we are invoking this, this much bigger constellation of, of human industrial activity that ranges from clear cutting to overfishing the oceans to plastics everywhere. And of course, plastics are made from oil and, and hydrocarbons and you, you name it. There's just a whole range of, of, of of things that humans have done to this planet um, that have made our lives really good in a lot of ways. Um, and that's where the dilemma comes from in, in, the, in my most recent book, uh, is how do we sort of preserve some of these wonderful things that, that humanity has created for ourselves um, and the cost at which they have come. And so how do we reconcile these conflicting things? Right. Because you talk about how, in many ways, you know, the human species... Um, you know, a lot of 
we're at a, spa- a state where there's a lot of privilege and a lot of comfort in, in many of our lives, not, not yeah. necessarily all, all of the human species as a whole, but, uh, you know, there's sitting here in, in Vancouver and Steveston, uh, you know, it's comfortable lifestyle and it's often at the backs of, of the compromises that as a society we've, we've taken and borrowed from, from the, the perils of, of climate change, you know, we've, yeah. we've afforded this comfort because of a lifestyle um, that isn't always aligned with um, the needs for the climate. Um, not to say that they can't be, but the way that the current, uh, you know, system of industrial policy and, and our economics work, you know, they're not necessarily aligned with the, the needs of environmental change. Yeah, there's, there's definitely misalignment. I mean, I'm sipping on this, beautiful oat milk cappuccino that Dean made me right before this <laughs> and uh we're in this beautiful condo and 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 but it's you know so there's that there's these creature comforts uh but I I don't think it's it's only that there's also you know I think we all have daughters in this room mm-hmm. right do you have a daughter two sons two sons all right yeah. anyways but two, two Diener, got Diener's got two and and uh, I've I have a six-year-old daughter myself and um this is a really good time and place in world history for uh, a young girl and to become a woman and, and the possibilities that are open to her. So women's rights is one of the things I'm getting at in this, you know, human rights and, and you know, public education and the very idea of that there should be a, such a thing as a charter of rights and freedom and democracy and a lot of these things that we take for granted that are not just material comforts, but I think really massive social uh, benefits that did not exist throughout thousands of years, certainly of, of Western history, um, but I don't think only Western history. Um, a lot of them come from this, this, this abundance and this prosperity that our industrial mode of, of living has, has delivered to us. Mm-hmm. And, and I, don't, I think it's, 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 it's dangerous to take those things for granted or to assume that well, they'll always be here. I mean, we've lived, I'm 45 years old, and I've lived this life of total peace and opportunity. And I know that's partly because I'm a, I'm a white guy from Edmonton, but um, I would argue that even with all the caveats, there, we're living at a time when there's a really, a, a, just a huge array of, of wonderful things that are, that are happening in society from LGBTQ recognition and, and women's rights and education. And my wife delivers babies for a living. She delivered two of yours, Zach. Yeah. <laughs> and, uh, and, and, you know, if you look at maternal mortality and infant mortality, I mean, it was orders of magnitude higher just 50, 80 years ago. Yeah. Um, that's no joke, you know, and that's happening all over the world. That's not just in wealthy Vancouver or even in North America and Europe. I mean, all throughout the world, maternal mortality is, is plummeting because of, um, you know, advances in, in medical technology. And, and so, you know, I, I think those, those are some of the things. It's not just cappuccinos and wine and, and good music, although I treasure all of those things and I don't want to let go of them either. But I think it's also these, these really... Uh, I would argue more profound uh, spiritual and cultural advances. It's a fraught word. I don't want to, you know, you've got to be careful when you're talking about progress. But I, I do think that there has been some pretty unambiguous progress that that we should be fighting to change to preserve, even while we change some of the industrial 
practices that have that have this really harsh um, cost that, that we're now seeing. Mm. Mm. I was like confronted with this dilemma this summer, and just as you were speaking, I was mm-hmm. reminded of it. So friends of ours, we uh, we went away with them just up to Kelowna, mm-hmm. but you know, like drove our vehicles up there. Yeah, and it was just before all the wildfires like really yeah. became dangerous. And actually, for the time while we were there, the highway was closed, and we didn't know if we were going to be able to get back or anything like this. Right. So it was a little uncertain, but we were we had rented this house, and you know, it's Kelowna in the summertime, so it was high twenties, and yep. we have this comfortably air conditioned house that slept our both of our families fridge full of food and everything we would need and i was sitting at the pool right beautifully like immaculate (laughs) what could be wrong with the world and sitting there and as the literally as the wind changed direction and the sky started to turn red from the smoke it was like blowing in i guess from like the northeast or wherever from one of the fires and reading on my phone the recently released uh, report from the IPCC. Oh, yeah. Okay, that's right. That came out right at that time in the middle of August there. Yeah, and I was just like, oh, my God. Like, it was this... I couldn't ignore, like, the creature comforts and the, you know, privilege of being able to just, like, go away and live in this, like, nice way for for a, a week and a bit, but then being confronted with the reality of, like, the province is burning. Yes. And you couldn't escape it because it was literally all around us. And then, you know, realizing like, oh, the highways are closed because they're on fire. Yes. Like it was so wild to sit in this kind of bubble of coziness and you can just ignore it and pretend it's not there, but like reading it and literally while it's happening. You know, I think you've nailed something that I've been thinking about a lot lately. And and kind of the the image that comes to my mind is it's it's like, you know, we, we all grew up watching the news to some extent. But it was always something that happened out there, mostly to, to other people in other places. And I have this like image in my mind now that it's, it's like I'm watching, you know, sitting on my couch in my home, watching the news, comfortable. And there's like, a, you know, there's it's like there's a, a police or, or the bad guys are chasing somebody on, on the screen. And then the bad guys are like banging down the door. And then all of a sudden that banging is happening on my door. And then, like, somebody bursts into the room at the same time as they're bursting into the room on the screen. And it's like the, the thing that is happening on the screen is now happening to us. Yes. And it's coming into, like, the smoke is coming through our windows. The, the water is dribbling up through the, the cracks of the doors. And all of this stuff is just, like, creeping in closer and closer. And, and I, I, you know, I think it's a story that many cultures throughout history have had happen to them you know and now it's it's happening here with with climate change yeah and and in in bc i think more than most i think we're really on on the front lines in, in a lot of ways yeah but, and, but it, we're not alone. and that's the thing is like it was interesting because you experience nature you go for a hike or spend some time in tofino or go into an old growth forest and you can feel so connected and and have this desire or this urgency even to want to care for and protect and and sustain what we've got and then the flip side is like not everybody is going to do that mm-hmm. but like people you know tragically this year in many ways experienced the climate emergency in a way that is like oh my god like we can't just ignore this anymore because our homes have been lost or our you know a month of our summer has been replaced by like smoke season yeah which really is like 
fire season, yeah. right? It's not just because it like gets smoky down here in, in Vancouver for a few days and it's like the air quality isn't the best. Yeah, it's like all of us, I think BC is such a culture of we've all got friends in so many of these communities in the Okanagan or the Kootenays or the Sunshine Coast or Vancouver Island. And a lot of us have been lucky to live in some of those places. Mm-hmm. And, and I think, you know, summertime has been a time of visiting friends and places and connecting with both of those things. And then now that's interrupted in a way, in a really shocking way for exactly the reason that you mentioned. It's like you don't know if you're going to turn the corner on the highway and, and be confronted by fire and flame. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> and let alone if you happen to live, you know, so many of us or our friends live in these communities and, and they're very vulnerable now. Yeah. I have, we have good friends who live in the Okanagan and have a farm out there right by Summerland. And uh, every summer... They're not sure, is this going to be the summer that the fire comes for our house? Yeah. And that is, that's uh, hard. I, you know, I, I can only imagine what, what that kind of stress. They've got five kids, you know. Yeah. What that's like. Yeah. Not just an inconvenient no, exactly. truth anymore, right? It's like we're confronted. It's, it's moved beyond it's inconvenience. It's existential yes. inconvenience, maybe. I yeah. don't know what the, what's the term. Yeah. Yeah. I remember watching that movie, The Inconvenient Truth, and, yeah. and um, mm-hmm. you know, at the time, lots of my mind kind of blowing in so many directions of, of things that should seem obvious, but it kind of, you know, that's, what was that, like 15 years ago or so that that movie came out? Yeah, 2006, I think, Two, I want to say. So close, close to that, yeah, 16 years ago, and um, so we've been aware of these these issues for a long time, and, and for, for many people especially here in, in Canada, it's kind of been this like invisible thing until recently, you know? Yeah. Um, how do we create more urgency for people to, to act? Like Dean was mentioning, we go for a walk in nature and we're so connected and we love it. And mm-hmm. We turn on the TV and we see these, these, these things happening with climate change and now they're happening here as we've been seeing them happen all over the world for, for a long time. Yeah. Uh, Despite that, there's still not like a daily urgency. Like convenience seems to trump, um, you know, a a long term sensibility for protecting this world uh, for yeah. for many people, not for not for everyone. But how do we um, start to shift our our daily practices and accept um, some of the conveniences don't serve our future? And that there can be things that are just as convenient. We just need to change our our practices. How how do we kind of set that urgency? How do we set the well, table for for concern? And I mean, obviously, books like yours. But I'm just uh, I'm curious to your take. Yeah, I mean, Zach, you've just articulated the question that bedevils every climate communicator on earth and has been for some time. Yes. How do we get people to care about mm-hmm. and and to feel this thing? You know, and and you I, when you become when you engage with this issue as, you know, I guess as I'll speak personally, um, as somebody who's been trying to tell this story and find ways to tell this story that connects with people and, and, and creates that or enables that sort of sense of urgency that you're talking about. Uh, I have found it, it, it's like being in this hall of mirrors where everybody knows about climate change. You know, it's this, it's not news to anybody and everybody in fact is already kind of sick of hearing about it. And you know, if you, if you, if you get too doomy, then people are already overwhelmed with bad news. You know, there's more bad news every day. Mm -hmm. Uh, that is not just suddenly true now. It's been that way for a while. People are, but, 
but but if you downplay it then you run the risk of like oh it's not that big of an issue so it, it's a really it's kind of a wild uh thing how do you tell the story in a way that is new captures people's imagination awakens them to the threat without you know numbing them with existential paralysis and just overwhelming them um, and I wish I had an easy answer for you, but <laughs> it does not exist. But I will say that I do think, you know, you were asking about the, you know, what's the promise in the subtitle of my book, it's Promise in Peril yeah. in an Age of Climate Crisis and what could possibly be the promise. I think that now that we're starting to see these huge catastrophes come in, uh, that is pretty good publicity for the cause. Mm. You know, um, people are now being shocked awake and seeing it for what it is. And that was not true even five years ago. You know, I, I've been writing about climate stuff for 15 years or so. Um, and it's only in the last few that it's been so unambiguous that the stuff that's happening is directly related to climate change. I mean, my mother's-in-law in, uh, in Montreal had to sell their house because it was right on the water. And uh, it was there was catastrophic floods two out of four years. There's you know two once in a century floods in the space of th of three years actually. Things like that are just happening all over the place. And and so I I do think we're in this moment where people are, are you know nature is is connecting the dots for us. And I think Naomi Klein or, or somebody said you know we're the last generation. Uh, we're the first generation to experience the effects of climate change and the last generation that can do something about it. Mm. Um, and I think that is this weird crucible that, that we're in that is, uh, you know, it's horrifying, but it's also inspiring because there is still time to do things um, and people are awake to it. And, and, and the, I, I think it, for me, it gives me a sense of purpose. Mm -hmm. And I think it can give our culture and our society a sense of purpose and meaning which I think is something that has been lacking for a really long time in our culture. Um, if you look at just levels of just anxiety and depression and uh, sort of, I think, listlessness, you know, we especially in the West have just defined our lives through accumulation of, of money and, and, and whatever, you know, all of these material, like a very almost uniquely and strictly material definition of fulfillment mm -hmm. which is not fulfilling it's actually quite empty and I, I think there's been all sorts of consequences to that and, and I think now there's really nothing like an emergency to sort of snap you out of your funk and and get you to come together and 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 give you purpose and, and drive and energy and 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 so that's I think I see that as this moment that we're in and and it's exciting and, it, and it's frightening and, and it's all of those things yeah it kind of reminds me of that um, recently that, um, oh, is it Adam McKay? The film Don't Look Up? Oh, yeah. Don't Look Up. Yeah, oh, Adam McKay. That's that right. Yet. Oh, yeah. you haven't seen it? No, oh, it's worth watching. It's great. Watch it. Yeah. yeah. It, it feels like we're in the latter half of that movie. <laughs> yes, definitely. The comet people is. people are like, oh, shit. I think this is actually happening. I th I, there's that thing in the sky there. Yeah, totally. Yeah. Yeah. That was a great, a great it, parable. Yeah. Right. Yeah. For, on, on many levels, perhaps. Very, very timely release on that. You know, the inevitability of something that is right before you and still like seemingly not wanting to acknowledge it yeah. or do anything about it. Um, I heard you speak on something before and I wonder if we can tie it into that conversation we were just mm. having. Um, so given that example of like, we know the inevitability, we can, you know, 
unequivocally say climate change is happening. Yeah. And yet there are still some people who would deny or downplay the yeah. significance of the moment we're in. Yeah. So as much as we can say, like, what are some things we can do to get people on board? Mm -hmm. Like, why do you think it is, are there some like main reasons that people avoid wanting to like see what's before us? Yeah. Well that, so there's a, a wonderful complex psychology of denial going on there. And, and where does that, that come from? Um, so I have gone there and, and thought about it and, and written about it. It's, if we can step back a couple minutes, I just think there, it, it, it is related to this just material abundance mm -hmm. that our society has accumulated through this industrial approach to, to life that has been driven entirely by fossil fuels. I mean, when we're talking about climate change, we're talking about oil and gas and coal providing just an insane amount of energy, like more energy than humans have ever had. It has fueled this explosion of well-being, um, as well as a bunch of war, which we can talk about with, later with respect to Ukraine. Um, but uh, as far as where the denial comes from, I think people, to acknowledge that there's this huge price to pay means that something fundamental about the way you've been living and the way you've organized your life and the things that you believe, your, your entire worldview has this enormous blind spot in the middle of it. And I think that's really hard for people to accept. Mm -hmm. And one of, the, one of the sort of analogies that I think of is, is when Galileo noticed that there are moons that circle Jupiter. And, and then, you know, that was right around the time when scientists were starting to look at space and realize, okay, actually, I don't think Earth is the center of the universe. I think we're circling the sun, not the other way around. And yeah, everything does not revolve around humans. And, and the church, of course, took this as an existential threat to their whole power structure over, over, um, Society, and I know that you are a pastor, Dean. So I'd, I'd be really curious to hear your take on this. Yeah. Um, but so I'm not trying to denigrate uh, spirituality, but the institution and the, and the and the the political power structures that that go with that. Um, I think in that case, why was you know why did why did the Pope care whether he whether the Earth was at the center of the universe or not? Mm. Um, in my view, very distantly, I think it was probably not necessarily only because it meant they might have to tweak, you know, their 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 vision of the cosmos. It was because it sort of questioned every, you know, once you start pulling that thread, it it takes away, it sort of delegitimizes the entire power structure of the people who have the most power yeah. in the world, and and so I think, so you know, they said Galileo, take it back, tell say that. We we are the center of the universe, and so <laughs> Galileo did take it back, you know. But fa famously and and maybe uh, apocryphally, there's the saying that that after he you know he went up in in front of all the authorities at this famous court trial, and he and he recanted. But then as he walked away from the stand, he mumbled, "And yet it moves." Uh, uh, they say, yeah. um, speaking of 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 the moons and and everything, and. So I think for Galileo, it didn't necessarily challenge his own beliefs. Um, 
and it was maybe easier for him to let go of the way that he had been raised to see the world mm -hmm. than it is for many people today because suddenly, you know, it's tied into, yeah, all these things that you thought were unambiguously good. I grew up in Alberta, and so in Alberta, oil and gas have been the things that paid for hospitals and schools and let alone all this beautiful infrastructure and this, you know, and the backyard barbecues and the houses that we live in and and... So how can oil and gas, don't tell me oil and gas is bad. What are you talking about? Mm -hmm. And it's just this knee-jerk reaction that I think is exploited also very cynically by certain powers that be. But we let ourselves, the royal we, people, let them, some people, certainly not all, uh, but some people let themselves fall into that sort of denial. Yeah. And uh, that, that's, that's how I see it. Yeah, for sure. I think... Uh... Well, jumping back to Galileo and mm -hmm. the church, like I think, um, sadly, one of the, probably one of the most tragic moments in the history of how religion has impacted the world. There have been many sad moments along the way, I would say. Some, many beautiful ones, of course, as well. But I think what that was, in many ways, the beginning of this parting of science and religion. Mm. And these two, I think they go hand in glove. Yeah. But these two systems of seeing the world or ways of seeing the world, there was a divorce there that happened. And, you know, um, it was the results, I think, have been tragic and we're still experiencing them with many, even today, with many people who would be uh, adherents of certainly Christianity kind of flouting the reality of not only climate crisis, but the pandemic that we've been in and are in, but seeing it as like a mistrust of science because it was people like them that, you know, tried to disprove or undercut the worldview of of God and this spirituality that holds, you know, their ultimate reality is found in God. And yet, like, for the Pope, who is the leader of the Catholic tradition, which is not my tradition, but still, um, this fear of, like, oh, no, something, someone has discovered something that could, like, shake the power and control that we have. And it is far less about belief or understanding because fundamentally to see the the universe as more creative and bigger and more interesting than you had previously imagined or understood can only speak to the nature of the infinite. Yes. And to be able to say, yes. oh no, it fits in this neat box and this neat package and we've got it all figured out. In In that scenario, I would pose the question, who then is God? If you can know everything in the parameters of the thing you claim is infinite, how does help me understand mm. that? There's a cognitive dissonance there that does not work. And so yeah. for me, the the exploration of someone like Galileo or even, you know, people nowadays who are making these incredible discoveries that kind of shift worldviews or poke at maybe older traditional worldviews, I see them as like deeply spiritual advances to say, like, oh my gosh, there's so much more that we didn't understand. Like a few years ago, I remember watching Neil deGrasse Tyson. He had that show called The Cosmos. Yeah, and my that wife, guy is amazing. Amazing, yeah. right? My wife walked into the room and she's like, what are you watching? I was like, I, I'm not sure because I just caught it on when it was on TV. Right. And I was like, I'm not sure, but I think this guy is trying to like undercut all of like Christian and religious spirituality, <laughs> but it is like I'm having a spiritual experience watching this show because it is amazing because wow. yes like of course that's how it works and of course we need to resist and reject systems that reinforce the way it was or the yeah. way it always has been and so 
on that on that note, I mean, like, yeah, I think obviously Galileo was right and was right in exposing not, I think, the myth or the untruth of religion, but the mishandling of how the entire story was kind of packaged in a small way to preserve power and control. And in some ways it fits perfectly with the climate crisis, right? Because there are narratives that have been trying to package this thing in a way that says, no, no, we can offset it with tax or you can have your fossil fuels and, you know, re- reduce climate change too. Yeah, yeah, there's all these there's all these insidious little bargains that are being offered to right. that are ultimately about us not actually having to change anything. That yes. we can just keep doing things the way we're doing it and we'll just put a tax here or, or you know, a, an offset there. Um, but I did want to mention uh, that I, uh, we can't talk about popes without talking about Pope Francis. And uh, and I don't know what you think. And I've been actually, you know, I'm, I'm not uh, a Christian or a Catholic myself, but I have been very inspired by Pope Francis's eloquence and his call to humanity to, to, to fight to preserve this earth. And he has been a leading voice, I think, uh, to recognize that climate change is real and that our relationship with the earth has to change yeah. and that's and that's been a pretty uh quite a departure from you know the pope that the pope's reaction to galileo's statement i think yes and it shows that it's it's not necessarily it's it's really um it, it's not about the institution itself necessarily maybe I don't, i'm trying to put this the right way but there's an opportunity to take this in different ways absolutely and if you can see something not necessarily as a threat to your own power but as an opportunity to open, to be if if you remain open to wonder and and to and to empathy and kindness, and if you and if you root your worldview in in those things, as I feel, uh, Pope Francis really has done, um, then great things are possible. And and mm-hmm. and you know I I see it as a proof that uh, religion can just as easily be a force for betterment. Um, in even just in this you know in this in this in this earthly sphere uh, yeah. you know let alone the, the spiritual dimensions but yeah. that institution can can be good yeah. um, and and can do good it is interesting um, that like the as the as the narrative goes like god created the world and was it was given as a gift to humanity and the first task is to like care to care for this yeah. and to name species and animals and to live in harmony and it's like we this the the built-in argument in the Judeo-Christian worldview is is right there fundamentally at the beginning of the whole story. Stewardship is stewardship, yeah. and that's the word that's come up. It used to be it used to be like a kind of a, like a a religious or in in this context like a Christian word stewardship, mm-hmm. and now we hear that environmental stewardship like all the time to care for to to use but not overuse and to maintain right not just not just. Um, you know, sustaining, but regenerative. Mm-hmm. And like, this is the picture that's been there all along, you know, even in the, the, uh, we're getting spiritual now, but even in the Hebrew Bible, like in the old Testament, the, the command from God or the wisdom or the found ground of being, however we understand it is like to work the land, but then let it rest. Yeah. And that was a built in like sacred obligation to not overuse the land, but to let it rest and regenerate. And so it was like, yes, it was an agricultural practice, but it was also a spiritual religious discipline because you were tied and understood the land. Back when those two things were not mutually exclusive, right? Exactly. When, we, when we had a relationship with this earth. And, yeah. and 
Yeah, that's, so, that's fascinating. So those people, you know, Christians, Catholics, all of us really should be uh, the leaders in like advocating and working to preserve and regenerate our earth. Mm-hmm. If we were to take those commands and those stories seriously, we would see our role in that as being like on the front lines yeah. of, of climate defense. But And some are, but some are sadly, for sure. Many many are many are not. Yeah. No no religion on a dead planet. <laughs> That's true. That's true. <laughs> I mean, right? Well, it's true words. <laughs> or, <laughs> or maybe more cheekily, no popes on a dead planet. Yeah. Right. <laughs> Nor all these conveniences that we're you know scared to no make cappuccinos from. either. No cappuccinos. That's true. Dang yes, it. a couple a couple of things that I wanted to unpack just from listening to the conversation mm-hmm. that's uh, going on here. One is this like idea of bad versus good, and I remember, and I think this might be at, at kind of the heart of some of the issue. I remember talking to a friend that worked in in the fossil fuel industry and mm-hmm. was kind of debating, you know, like the the damage of fossil fuels, which I think is undebatable but we kind of got onto this topic of bad versus good and he brought up that we live in a capitalistic society yeah and in capitalism good is making money yeah that's how we're rewarded that's seen as the 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 carrot of of doing well you do well you do good you get paid money and so I hear <laughs> it hasn't worked out for me yet, but I, one of these days I'm sure it's going to happen. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, for sure. I mean, we can debate, debate that too. But um, so in his, in his worldview, he was doing good because capitalism was rewarding him yeah. for working That's in the, the fossil message. fuel industry. Sure. And that was the message that, you know, basically like mainstream media, you know, we live in this capitalistic circle where, if you want all these things, you want these convenience, you want these comforts, like the way to play is to, to make money. Yeah. Um, and then if you look at it from the stance that we're sharing here is, you know, fossil fuels bad because it's damaging, damaging this world that we live in and it's making, you know, irreparable damages that might not be able to be fixed. But I think where I draw the line and Dean and I have talked about this is like, if does, does good serve the collective of this planet or does it serve the individual and the individual could be the corporation or, or mm. you know, the market or whatever. So mm-hmm. like for me, that's, that's how I define things. Yeah. But I, I can see how it can be confusing for people. You know, if they're, if they're in financial trouble and, you know, they find something that gets them out of that and that system is not serving the collective, um, but it allows them to live a better life. Um, it gets complicated. Absolutely. Yeah, and I think we underestimate that complication at our peril, so to speak. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. Um, the other thing you talked about was hope, and I think that's like the exciting part. And I think like life is more exciting when we attach to hope. And we had a, a previous guest on Grace Nosek who talked about um, um, what was the word she used? Climate pleasure and mm-hmm. bringing pleasure um, into into the equation and mm-hmm. and I for me I, I mean I find it exciting because I can make choices in in my day to day that are empowering that can like create good versus you know the idea of bad whether that's choosing what food I I eat or choosing which businesses I support um, so I think if we can go. Uh, micro that can create macro impacts and 100% I just wanted to kind of maybe we could unpack like small things that can have incremental steps to bigger things that oh yeah for people that are listening 
you know, that you, we talked about gloom and doom and being intimidated and I think intimidating, I think that can be paralyzing for some people, yeah. but if we can get to that incremental level, totally. And millions of people can do incremental things that can change the world. So, okay. There's a lot going on there. I, before <laughs> I forget, before I forget, I just want to talk about, uh, last night I was, I, 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 AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, posted this beautiful uh, message on, on her Instagram talking about exa- exactly that, about you know how overwhelmed we, we can be in the face of these immense odds. And, and I think somebody had asked her, like, how do you go on and how do you, you know, you're up against this, even AOC, who's a member of Congress and, and is, you know, has more power than, than most of us, um, but even she is up against this stuff. And, and she said it in terms of a mosaic and that we're all... We're all individual pieces of this mosaic. And if you zoom in, I'm going to butcher it. I encourage people to, to, to check it out because it's a beautiful post. Um, but she talks about how, you know, you might just, every one of us might just be this little shard of, of glass or, or rock or thread or whatever. And if you zoom in on that, it might just seem like one little useless item. Um, but then if you step back and look at the entire mosaic, you realize what a beautiful tapestry it, it creates and that every single piece of it ha- is crucial and, and is vital. Um, and that just really spoke to me. I, um, to go back to what you were, you know, you opened this with the good and the bad of, of capitalism. Uh, there are definitely people who argue that capitalism has to go I'm not one of those people. I don't really have an issue with capitalism. I think I think we could tweak it. You know, I think we're we're living in a period of just sort of wildly unrestrained, supposedly free market capitalism that actually has all kinds of weights on all kinds of scales to favor the rich and powerful. Um, so I, you know, but I, I just I, there hasn't been a system that I know of, other than capitalism, that has solved the problems we're we're trying to confront today. I mean, the Soviet Union was environmentally catastrophic Um, and that that was you know that was a communist society and indigenous cultures throughout the world have indeed lived in in much better harmony with with their natural environments and and I definitely think we have a lot to learn from them both here at home and abroad but I also don't think that any indigenous society on earth has had to figure out how to get tens of millions let alone billions of people living in a way that is congruous with ecosystem health and sustainability so i think that you know this problem of climate change and all of the things that fit underneath that of overconsumption and plastics and and you know forestry and all that stuff um this is a new situation for humanity and so rather than say capitalism has to go um, I, I, you know, I, I think capitalism is the system we have. Let's sort of take one thing at a time here. Let's work. We, I think, I think we can work within it. I think you're absolutely right to look at, you know, this, this idea of what's good for me, the individual versus good for the, the collective. And I think that's a trap that we've gone really far down in, in Western society. Um, and how we, you know, I think a central, thing is how you know in this pandemic has really brought it out um how you know sort of forced us to look at oh gosh we i live in a collective like what can i do that will be maybe not great for me um but good for this culture you know maybe i guess i'm not gonna go out for dinner so much for a while now and 
man, I guess I got to get wear this mask all the time. And even though I'm not, I'm young and healthy and boosted and I'm not going to get sick, but I guess I'll wear a mask, you know, all these things. And certainly not everybody has been into it, but I think we're lucky that Canada's in a, in one of the countries that, that has generally people have been pretty cool and have, I think we have, I think it has awoken us a little bit to that sort of collective good mentality, which we're going to need a whole lot more of going forward. And, and just lastly, I think, you know, you, you were talking about this with, you said a, a friend from in the oil patch. Uh, mm-hmm. And, you know, I, I think there's been this dynamic that is, that has come up where, uh, I think we're working on it now, us in the environmental community, but we've, we've sort of vilified the entire thing and, and it, it, it's, it's sort of set up this, you know, anybody who's ever been in a relationship and, and you start fighting, everybody just gets into their defensive posture and you feel threatened. And there's, when you're in that frame of mind, you're just, you're not open to other people's arguments or points of view. And I think that's kind of what has happened with a lot of people who work in the oil and gas industry where they're probably aware of climate change and, and all of these effects and, and they don't, it's not like they want to be wrecking the planet and I don't think they're even denying things, but they just feel so attacked by environmentalists saying, you guys are, you know, you're working for Mordor and you're wrecking the planet and all you want is a bunch of cash, you greedy pigs, and you're spending it on cocaine and hookers on the weekends in Fort McMurray. And, you know, what's your answer going to be to that? Fuck you, I'm, you're wrong, that's not who I am, so... I guess rather than engage in dialogue, I'm going to keep doing what I'm doing. And so, yeah, I think we need to, I'm trying to overcome that and and see the humanity in, in especially the workers. And, and, you know, this whole movement needs to focus on how can we, how can we help those folks out who are legion, who are working in that industry? There are entire towns in, in, in Alberta and beyond that, that rely on coal and oil and gas to survive. So if you don't have an answer for them of how they're going to transition off of that, then, then good luck. Mm-hmm. Well, I think that's part of the capitalism equation, you know, like capitalism at its, at its best can represent solutions and innovation. And, yeah. hundred percent. And we've seen incredible things happen, um, through capitalism, amazing innovation of, of green solutions. And I think we just need to lean into, I mean, I'm hoping that if we lean into that, we can see that we have the solutions and they can be economically viable. Mm-hmm. Um, we just have to give them the opportunity to to succeed. Yeah. Um, like we're we're seeing. I, I mean, I think Tesla is an example of of working within the system to kind of create solutions and and um, I think uh, what's his name the the founder of Tesla. Elon Musk. I mean, That's he, a whole separate conversation yeah. right there. <laughs> Where are you going with this? Yeah. <laughs> I was just going to say, he can be as problematic as he can be heroic. Mm-hmm. Uh, depending totally. on yeah. you know, his latest tweet or his latest... Yeah, speaking, uh, speaking of dilemmas. Yeah, 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 he's, mm, a, yeah. he's a great dilemma in himself. But I think in terms of, of his car, you know, we took these... We have these, you know, carbon, carbon fossil fuel kind of cars that are, are driven off driven with gas and and he works within the system and creates this car that's sexier and, and totally cooler yeah and, I, absolutely uh, no question you know and and that kind of breaks the paradigm and i think we can kind of use that example for for other possibilities yeah well. it was like this amazing kung fu move to like use the system against itself in yes. a way to 
to like yeah get us off of that internal combustion engine. that's what i'm trying to say but i also you know I, again going back to your uh one of the, the things you were mentioning just in terms of individual agency and and you know what can we as individuals do mm-hmm. and how paralyzing that is um you know it's not like we're all going to be elon musk or mm-hmm. alexandria ocasio-cortez we don't all we're not going to be heroes most of us uh, have jobs, have families, have lives. We're like wrapped up in this system, and and so what you know. One of the things that I like, I kind of my message, if I have a message, is that it, it's okay to not be a hero. Um, in fact, it's probably better if we don't all try to be heroes. But maybe just to start noticing and paying attention to what's going on in the world, and to know that you know whatever your station in life, whether you are a single parent or a university student or retired or in the midst of a career and raising a family, wherever you are, um, there is something available to you in this story. You can be a part of this story in some way, whether it is just, you know, addressing the member of your family who is a Trump supporter or whether it is, you know, buying a, I don't know, buying an electric bike even that is expensive but you know biking a bit more you voting who do you vote for it's not for me i don't think there's any prescription but everybody once you like become awake to this thing um this moment in history and and the scale of it and if you just look around you will see that there are people all around who are super inspiring and there is a way for you to to be a part of this story and i think you know as well as purpose that gives us a bit of agency and um, yeah, I can't say what that is for any particular person, but I, I know it's there, even if it's just noticing. And it starts with just noticing and paying attention. Mm. So it can kind of become a filter to how we make decisions as a whole. Yeah. So for it, like, I'm a citizen that's concerned about the environment. I'm going to vote that way. I'm going to purchase uh, my groceries that way. I can purchase my car or my bicycle that way. Thank you. It's, that's exactly what so, I was so, trying so, to so, say. Yeah, <laughs> we fulfilled each other's Please <laughs> <laughs> yeah. between the three of us. It's beautiful. Yeah. So it can become a lens of how you make decisions yeah. uh, once you're aware and once you're consider once you're considering the implications of climate change. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. I think um, people have to address probably where they are in terms of that awakening too. So once you see something or you become aware of like, oh man, the way I'm living actually is like contributing in a great deal to something that I don't want to contribute to. And it could simply be, you know, whether it's what's on your plate, which was certainly like my reality versus like, you know, we've talked about before, like how are you doing your laundry, right? Simple, simple things that if you don't know, you don't know. But then once you kind of see like how you're, implicated in the system you can either be like oh man okay i gotta change that or i think some of us feel this like sense of like guilt that can be paralyzing like oh now i'm just like a bad person and you know i drive this big diesel truck everywhere or blah 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 blah, whatever it is and it can almost be like well how do i even change Mm -hmm. and i think there's two layers of of things going on there it's like what do i need to do or stop doing to like help contribute to, you know, minimizing my impact on the climate, but also like, how do I deal with this guilt that I have that it's like, I'm a contributor, which we all, we all are mm-hmm. living in this modern, at least. Yeah. We're all implicated. We're all a part of this system. Yeah. I mean, that doesn't mean we're bad, but we're, 
we're a part of it and yeah. <laughs> we're bound up in it. Um, yeah. Right. And so like helping people to mm-hmm. see you're not, you're not guilty of it all, but like you can start to work through that or overcome that sense of like foreboding. Oh no, like I'm this bad person. So we need a climate therapist. Maybe. Yeah. Right. Yeah. yeah. I think those are, title, I think that is a new profession. I don't know if I, I need one myself probably, but that one of the stories that I, that I talk about in, in, uh, in the environmentalist dilemma, which is super inspiring to me, partly because I um, am of Czech descent myself. And there was a man named Vaclav Havel who was a playwright back in the 60s and, you know, 50s, 60s, 70s, under when, and he was living in Czechoslovakia as it was then, under, you know, in, in this totalitarian Soviet state. And, and, I forget the exact year, but it would have been around 1980. He published this like 80 page essay called The Power of the Powerless. And um, it was Samizdat, which is illegal subversive literature that you get arrested for. And so, you know, we printed it on this underground press and then distributed it. And it and it it went viral in those days, (laughs) you know, as things went viral in those days, got read all over. Um, And it was, you know, it's an incredible essay in itself and it's talking about how what life was like in this totalitarian state you know the 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 person at the heart of the essay is a fictitious greengrocer who every day puts out a sign on his shop window that says um power to the you know may i forget what it was but like uh long live the worker and, and you know some some statement of 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 solidarity with the the cause of communism and support for the regime and so Vaclav Havel is asking you know does why does the greengrocer do this does he do it because he earnestly believes in the communist project and really wants to be a part of no he does it because everybody else does it and he knows he and he's just sort of this like unconscious thing and then why does he how does one then go about changing this totalitarian system in which if you actually try to you know turn things around especially in those days in the Soviet Union, you're very quickly, you know, you're going to get your business taken away. Maybe you'll go to jail. Maybe your family will go to jail. There's all of these harsh, harsh repercussions. Um, and so it's, it's this meditation on how every individual um, does, can do one little thing. And the one thing that this greengrocer could do is just not put that sign out one day. And that was the one little thing that he could do. And, you know, Vaclav Havel, it's a, in, in true literary style, he sort of shows, he kind of runs this thought experiment about how one or two of these threads being pulled and these little acts of bravery can, can create this, this, this ripple effect that spreads throughout a society and that could overcome even a totalitarian state like the Soviet Union. Mm-hmm. Um, this thing gets published, it goes out in the world. A few months later, the police come knocking you wrote this thing, yes, okay, you're coming to jail. Vaclav Havel goes to prison for five years, comes out of prison after that. Two years later, the Soviet Union collapses, and one year later, Vaclav Havel becomes the first democratically elected president of Czechoslovakia. Wow, that's incredible. It's just this amazing story. Yeah, I'm so inspired by it. And again, I'm, you know, I'm not trying to say that everybody has to write an 80 page essay and become president. Um, but it is, you know, history is full of, of these moments of inspiration and his message 
for his message, you know, when he wrote that essay, it must have seemed just as hopeless and impossible mm -hmm. that the Soviet Union would ever collapse. And yet he could envision it and he could envision how it would happen in a way that it actually did happen, which was through this mosaic effort of thousands and millions of people knowing that all of their individual actions were insignificant and unlikely to add up to anything, but they did them anyways and it, and it happened. And, you know, I think right now the modern incarnation of, of Vaclav Havel is, is Volodymyr Zelensky mm -hmm. in some ways, you know, <laughs> not, not to, anyways, just to leap us out of that frame. But yeah, yeah that's just my take on, you know, I think a really central thing about this is, man, these problems are so huge and overwhelming and these historical forces are just so much bigger than us puny humans. Um, so what do we do? How do we engage? What, you know, and, and. It's impossible not to wonder, but I, I think it's important not to get bogged down in, in our insignificance. I, I think mm -hmm. sometimes you can take refuge in that insignificance because it means it's not all your fault either. I mean, we're part of the system, but we're not the system. It's not up. It's not. Imagine if it was your responsibility, Dean or Zach, to, to save the world. Like, it's not. You don't have to do that. But maybe you can drive a little less and bike a bit more. I don't know. Maybe you can vote. For in the next civic election and pay a little closer attention to, to what the prop to, to what people are saying and you know the, these things are open to us so. yeah well just just listening to that i i thought it was you know breeds breeds the idea of hope and we were just meant talking about that yeah. previously um so i thought maybe we could sell some hope for a minute sure you know we, <clears throat> all right we kind of it's a hot commodity it's a, yeah. it's a hot commodity and i think um speaking personally like if i scroll instagram i scroll the news like um i see a lot more that can be um create anxiety and fear and, and yeah. hopelessness um more so than i see stories that kind of create hope and i think <clears throat> excuse you know, me you yeah. mentioned the president of ukraine and he's for sure like a inspiring individual right now but let's let's um we can go micro or macro let's just kind of what are some movements that are inspiring you right now whether it's like local land defenders here by ferry creek or sure, yeah. the president of ukraine what are some things that are making you hopeful as a what's given me hope uh these days well i you know i will say with if just to touch on the on the ukraine thing i, I mean that is almost irredeemably awful mm -hmm. but germany has and the european union have really dramatically accelerated their push to renewable clean energy because of course they get all of their or not all but 30 to 40 percent of their oil and gas comes from russia and so they this catastrophe has really accelerated in europe the drive to move to renewables um, in a way that nothing else could and yeah, you know, I don't want to talk about silver linings. I don't think there's a silver lining to war. Um, but that, to me, is is a sign of hope. Um, I think even locally, what gives me hope, Ferry Creek was a good example of that. Again, this thing where we've cut down so much of our old growth in, in British Columbia, and there's just nothing good about that. But look at the movement that arose in, in response to that, these... I don't know how I was lucky to go out there a, a couple of weeks into the arrests almost a year ago now in, in May of uh, May, end of May of 2021. I went out there and, and it was incredible to see people, you know, a the, the a the, the the hardcore land defenders who were there and installed and day in, day out. They had already spent the entire winter 
camped out in these logging roads mm-hmm. and, and blocking these, you know, quite aggressive loggers at times. And then they were getting arrested day in, day out. And also the, you know, the way that it captured the the imagination of, of British Columbians. And every single day, tens and dozens and hundreds of people were coming in from Victoria and Nanaimo, Vancouver and, and further afield uh, to, to add their bodies and, and, and their voices to this protest. And I think that that was just the spontaneous outpouring of, of people power that really held held the fire to the feet of government and, and forced them, you know, I think now we're finally at a place where it looks like we are actually going to preserve what's left of our, of our old growth. Um, we're not quite there yet, but that was a really inspiring example. And, and I think an example of, you know, people are looking for, nobody really wants to, to start the protest and to, you know, we don't know how to do that. It takes skills and wherewithal that we don't have, but if it's there, and if it seems like something that we can that we can join, I think, you know, it, it just showed to me that there is this popular desire, uh, in this case, to preserve old growth. But that's not the only example I can think of. So it, I think it it shows that the impact of people power and and that there is this sort of latent um, desire to be a part of something bigger and a force for good and, and to change some of the things that we're doing. So I, I see that that was a good example of hope for me. And I'll just also add that, you know, right now, Canada's Minister of Environment and Climate Change is Stephen Guilbeault, who was a pretty hardcore environmental activist for his most of his adult life. And now he's our Minister of, of Climate Change. And it's easy to be cynical about our federal liberal government. And I have my fair share of critiques. Um, but I think when you have people like that who are who are in power, um, yes, there's still going to be all kinds of political compromises, and, and he will disappoint us. But I think he's wide awake to everything that we're talking about. Like if he was just sitting down right here with us, you know, maybe not as a cabinet minister, but if he could just speak as a bro, I, I, I honestly think like in his heart, he agrees with all of us. And now he's sitting on the other side of that political table. And so now he's got to take all of these other things into consideration. And I wish that guy luck in overcoming some of these huge political obstacles that are that are that he's got to confront now. But I take hope in the fact that somebody like that can rise to that position. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there we go. I like that. That's good. And I mean, I think we we often want to see we want to see hope as like immediate, resounding change. Yeah. Um, Too many Hollywood movies. Yeah, yeah, exactly. But that's unrealistic. And sometimes it's moving it's moving the dial just you know a few degrees in the right direction is like really a few degrees. That's all we need. There right. We go. Yeah, that's right. <laughs> few degrees. Well yes. Uh, and that's, it's less sexy than the big Hollywood. Like we solved the climate yeah, right. crisis, but like in the, even, even coming back to the, the, um, little anecdote you, you shared, um, of the Baklav Havel. Yes. The thank check, you. Yeah. And like how that story is so dramatic and beautiful, because like he emerges as this you know free person who then becomes the leader mm-hmm. but it's like it didn't ha- it doesn't happen without that shopkeeper like not putting a sign up and then yeah. the next shopkeeper doing the same and someone else doing some small movement and like those are the things that i think are that's the groundswell of hope that we can like be part of and grab onto yes and that's that's where change comes yeah and i do take hope from you know i think man here we are having a world famous podcast about climate change right now and, <laughs> there we go. and uh here you know th- this conversation is is happening all over the place i do think urgency is in the air people are aware like never before we're living in this moment of immense potential and it's 
it's fraught and, and frightful, but also hopeful, I think. And, and I, you know, I grew up uh, a child of, of fantasy and science fiction stories, and, and I kind of see this as this Lord of the Rings moment for a human. You know, mm-hmm. so much is riding on this year, on this decade, on this generation. And yeah, you know, of course there's days it's it's impossible not to be overwhelmed and depressed by it. But it's also there's other days where you can see the the drama and the, the you know, I, I kind of see it as as this immense, uh, you know, human, this very exciting time to be alive, this immense human story of, of uh, you know, it has all of the elements that 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 we love in that that sort of define who we are as as people. There's a struggle. There's a thing to fight for. The stakes could not be higher. Uh, everything that we love is on the line, and and we can come together and and, and fight for this thing. And people are, you know, it's happening. Yeah. And and I don't know how it's going to turn out. Nobody does. There's a lot of darkness ahead. We're going to lose a lot, but we don't have to lose it all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. One one thing, uh, kind of on this circle of conversation that we've been we've been talking about that i'd like to get into and then i thought we could explore oil man in the sea yeah go back go back in time let's do it um you know we've been talking a lot about the human experience but in 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 your writing and in some of the your articles you talk about how this has affected kind of the the cyclic connection of of animals and, and nature and you mentioned at the beginning of the podcast how you know cutting down trees can lead to flooding and, yeah. and uh, landslides and kind of how it, these events aren't separate. They're all connected. Yeah. Um, and how, I, I mean, even on a, a personal note, like I remember reading, uh, we were talking about JB McKinnon yeah. earlier and reading one of his books. I think it was the once in future world. Yeah. And talk, it, like painting this picture of what forest used to be like, and mm-hmm. then having that fresh in mind and then going on a hike, of somewhere where I used to think it was beautiful and seeing the trees, even though they are beautiful, like seeing that they're all new growth and there isn't that biodiversity of, of animals and, and other animals that are, are thriving in these new forests because yeah. they haven't been planted in a way to allow them to have that diverse, um, ecosystem. Um, so I guess the two, two, two things that I'd like to talk about here, one, how, the connection of climate change from how cutting down a tree can lead to a flood and just the effect of climate change on animals. Like you mentioned, uh, how the salmon run here on the Fraser river, how it's gone from, you know, 15 million salmon a year to, you know, thousands or whatever. Yeah, that's right. We used to have about, there used to be about 14, 15 million sockeye every year that, that came back to the Fraser river to spawn. And and the latest counts have been around a hundred thousand, 200,000. Wild. Yeah. Yeah. And and even I remember you speaking on the la- the the heat the heat dome that we had last summer and how this is something I never th- even thought about like how you know clams just died or mussels mm-hmm. and all these you know, crustaceans and animals that you know billions of animals um, you know we talked about how humans were affected but billions of animals were were passing in, in and yeah. short short times of of these immense kind of heat waves. Um, so yeah, if we can kind of talk a little bit about how sure. it's all connected and how it's not just humans that are affected, it's the whole, you know, everyone that's occupying this, this mm-hmm. earth of ours. Yeah. I think that's so important, right? We were talking a little bit about how it's not, you know, this earth that we're on is not just an inert stage for human drama to play out on. 
and it's easy to, you know, I myself fall into that sort of narrative frame all the time. But I, one of the struggles that I'm trying to engage with is, is to develop like my own relationship with this living earth and the animals and plants and, and to see it. And I think that's a cultural uh, thing that is another sort of hopeful aspect to the story that we could we could gain there's so much for us to gain if we can you know awaken i feel like that word is coming up a lot uh, but awaken awaken to um this living earth that we inhabit and a lot of the relationships that we've lost as a culture and that i've never had as an individual who grew up in a city um of of you know seeing that the world that we live in is it has its own moods and 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 you know the animals and it's it's a difficult difficult thing to talk about without being sounding hokey but i'll I'll get into like so climate change and and biodiversity and 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 some of our industrial habits we were talking about forestry so in bc you know we live in this province is been largely defined by our industrial forest policy for a century or so we've just been clear cutting really heavily and yeah that has just destroyed the biodiversity of of this of this province because of course these forests are were originally very diverse in in both the, the number and kind of trees and the age of trees and 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 that then in turn creates a sort of a web of a, not sort of it creates a web of life um, that we have snipped away at so many of those strands you were talking about James McKinnon's book the once in future world and you know one of the premises of that is he, he talks about this 10% world that we're living in that the world that you know wh- when you behold what seems like pristine nature chances are um, it's actually operating at about 10% of its original biodiversity and abundance. If, if you, you know, you can actually quantify that in all kinds of ways. And, and he has this one image where he's showing all of these fishermen in, in the Florida Keys. And he's got like 100 years. He, he, he visits this, 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 this uh, sports fisher outfit. And, and they've got 100 years of photographs of, of, of people holding up their, their, their prize catches. And in each generation, the fish is like half as big as it was the generation before. But in each of those pictures, the person holding the fish has the exact same jubilant smile, like they've just caught the biggest fish in the sea. So it's it's a sort of a riff on on these shifting baselines that we don't, you know, it's it's for good and for bad uh, that we don't notice how much we've lost because we come into the world and we're like, okay, this is abundance. This is what I see. This is the biggest fish out there, and I caught it. Woohoo! You know, you don't know that that those fish, used, swordfish, used to be twice as big. Um, so that kind of stuff has been going on and, and is going on. Um, with this last few months in, in British Columbia, the, the tail end of 2021, climate change came along with these extreme weather events, a heat dome that, yes, they, they calculated, I believe it was a billion sea creatures were killed just by by the heat and you could smell it in in uh, in many parts of the coast you could just smell death you know and rotting rotting sea creatures it was it was a horrible stench uh, up and down the coast that was the heat dome it also killed 600 people by the way um and then came these forest fires that 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 you danced with dean mm, yeah. and i actually flew over them and in, in the middle of august i was visiting my family with my daughter in, in edmonton 
uh, and then we flew back home right at the height in the middle of August at the height of those fires and, and flew over these you know these gray black mushroom clouds that were emerging through the it was actually a cloudy day but through the the actual clouds were these smoke clouds that were they looked like mushroom clouds and I remember looking out the window with my daughter and she was like oh it's so pretty and uh, it was this shocking weird dissonant beauty that was you know this beautiful expression of of this horrendous thing mm. and and then right after you know two months after that came these floods of November that that were like the biggest thing of all and they captured the whole countries and I think to some extent the world's imagination um, but each of these you know as I mentioned earlier I think you know each of these catastrophes that were climate catastrophes played out on a field that had already been really really impacted by human industry um, and so it, the, the, these climate variables just sort of exacerbated Things that have already been happening. I, I remember I had a conversation with a with a with with a scientist, but right before all this stuff happened, we were talking about species at risk. She's a, a person who who specializes in, in species at risk legislation and, and is trying to like promote that. And I was asking her, you know, what what's the leading cause of extinction these days? And I actually it was sort of a leading question because I assumed that it was habitat destruction. That's what I've always thought. And, but she said, no, it's, it's not habitat destruction. It's now it's climate change. Like in Canada, we've destroyed, we've done most of the damage that we were going to do through habitat destruction. Our cities are built, our farms are built. That stuff has all happened. What's now really killing um, animals off and plants off and, and everything off is climate change. And, and this, this rapidly shifting, you know, the, the, the volatility from hot to dry, droughts and then floods. And then also, you know, trees are budding, you know, two or three weeks earlier than they used to. So all the cycles of, you know, migratory birds that used to come to eat the things that are not budding now when they were coming before. And then the pests that all of it, like, it's just this crazy cascade of, of, you know, so much of you realize how much of the natural world involves timing and animals moving around to arrive at a place right when, the fisher, my the fisher here, or the tree is is you know fruiting or whatever, um, and as all of those little very precise timing moments that have been stable for the last however many thousand, hundred thousand, million years, suddenly they're just thrown out of whack in the blink of an eye in terms of evolution, mm-hmm. um, and then creatures can't keep up with that pace of change. Um, so that's a, a really rambling r- answer to what you're talking about. I don't know if I got it, what you were aiming at there. Well, I, I think it kind of brings the picture of urgency. Like uh, we live here in Houston. This is a community that's been built around fishing yeah. for since, since the Western history, at least um, right. and probably since before that. And I can even remember, and you can probably remember as well, Dean, like going to the Fraser river as a kid, you would literally just see you couldn't, you couldn't not see the salmon any direction you went, you would see the salmon. Right. And this is maybe, you know, 30 years ago or so. Yeah. And now oh, I haven't known. Maybe I'll see the odd salmon now. I'll see, you know, a couple and I'll, it'll be exciting. And I'll point to my kids like, look, there's a salmon. Yeah. But it used to just be a given that you would see the salmon because we lived on the Fraser River. Mm-hmm. And I think that number of, you know, you said 15, there used to be 15 million salmon. And now what did you say? There's a hundred, couple hundred thousand that have been coming back. And all that. So it's, it's all, like... It is on the brink of collapse. And I mean, your experience that you grew, you know, I grew up in Edmonton, so I don't have a relationship with the Fraser River. 
but you guys do and and you you have those those memories and and those are visceral stories and now you're raising children here who mm-hmm. they are going to have a relationship with that and mm-hmm. and yeah you know climate change is one thing forestry has you know these salmon spawn in in, in gravel beds and in little creeks and streams all the way up there and so forestry is logging is you know right up to the edges of these creeks for decades and decades has, has ruined a lot of these spawning grounds overfishing has done its thing all of these things go together and then you have you know these floods in, in the fall just washed out it came in november so right after all the salmon had laid their eggs these gravel banks just got you know pummeled by these in, immense floods you know the river became a torrent um as well as climate change is also warming up the rivers and making it hard for some of these salmon to to survive the swim because the rivers are you know three or four degrees warmer than, than they used to be and the ocean also is is getting warmer and, and so all of these man all these things are happening um but that i think you know you touching on on your relationship and your memories of, of growing up with salmon and seeing them and you know dean you were talking about being able to smell when mm-hmm. the salmon come up the river um these are the stories i think it you know it's, it's hard to tell these stories I, i've i've struggled to do it myself where we're so wired for stories that involve human you know, love affairs and, and murder plots and, and car chases and, and yeah. all these things. And, and so to, to slow down and, and captivate people with the melodies of, of nature and, and the natural world, um, it really, it almost vibrates on a different frequency than, than what we've become attuned to. And, and that's, I don't have a, a, a solution to that, but I, I think it's a, an essential part of this story that, that, that me and so many people are, are trying to tell of, of how can we you know, how, how can we really see the drama and feel both the tragedy of losing some of these, you know, and in, in some ways the Fraser River is, is dying before us, you know, and it's, it's, our, it's our mother, it's our sister, it's, our, it's this living sentient creature um, that is a river. And how do we wrap our minds around that and, and feel that tragedy, but then also feel the hope that we could bring her, we could resuscitate her and bring mm-hmm. her back to life. And, and how can we rally a, around that project and I think stories are are uh, you know of course I would think that stories are, are a <laughs> crucial part of that but uh, uh, they're not the only part but I, I think capturing people's imagination and getting them to invest in in the ways that we can solve some of these problems is 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 a core struggle that that I'm engaged with anyways yeah um, and I think people want like they want to hear them and they want to share them it's like early in 2020 when kind of the world shut down Mm-hmm. so many stories emerged about how things that were, you know, rivers that were completely like cluttered with boats. Yeah. There was this moment like, where like nature emerged, right? Like, like the skies cleared, everything calmed down. And it was yeah. like, Oh yeah. Yeah. That's right. We heard stories about like dolphins swimming in, in rivers, like in, in Venice or something. Yeah. Like, like dolphins were appearing and um, yeah, that's right. All these things were happening. Because nature is yeah. resilient. We just need to give it space to totally. be resilient. Um, yeah. And I think, like, touching on the river here, like, we, uh, going back to J.B. McKinnon, he, I know he talked about this idea of cultural amnesia, but I think, like, with storytelling, it is, can also share what's, what's possible and what was so that it can hopefully become again. Um, like, if we share these stories about the salmon, you know, our, our children can know that, that that is possible if yes. we are going back to the word stewards of of the land that we occupy yeah um that once in future world that once in future world 
So I think like through storytelling, we, we learn what's possible and that can can create an ecosystem of, of hope and possibility versus fear and doom. So mm-hmm. I like that, an ecosystem of hope and possibility. That's a really beautiful way to put it. And I think it goes to, you know, people like yourself that are, are storytellers. And, and I think that's, we talk about uh, what's important in climate change and, you know, to toot your horn for a second, I think it is storytellers like yourself that are, are, are creating that ecosystem of, of hope and possibilities. So yeah, thank you. I encourage you to continue writing and continue exploring. And, you know, before, before we wrap things up, I thought maybe we could chat a little bit about your, your old book, uh, sure. Oil man in the sea. And you can just, you know, cause we all love a good story and yeah. it seemed like such a wild adventure to, to be the character of your own story. I thought maybe you could kind of share that, that experience and that adventure sure. for the climate. Sure, man. Yeah. So the oil man and the sea uh, back some readers of a certain age and listeners of a certain age will remember um, in around. Uh, so this book came out in 2012 it was 10, 10 years ago, which is crazy. But there was uh, a huge pipeline project being proposed to build a pipeline from Alberta to Kitimat, which is a port city uh, in the you know central north coast of, of B.C. For, for those who don't know where Kitimat is. And uh, so the pipeline itself, you know, this was this was the big controversial pipeline of the day, and it was occupying tons of headlines and news, and and you know every First Nation along the pipeline route was was very vehemently opposed to it. Um, the, the the pipeline itself would have crossed you know all, all kinds of un uncut territory, and you, they were going to punch this thing through uh, forests that had not been logged, which there's not a lot of, you know, it was going through the middle of Northern BC and across rivers and all these things. So that was one, you know, that, that was bad enough. But then, uh, the terminus of the pipeline was Kitimat. So there the bitumen was going to get loaded onto oil tankers and delivered out through this labyrinth, the sort of treacherous labyrinth, uh, that is also known as the graveyard of the, of the Pacific because there's so many boats have sunk in, in there. And no, you know, there's never been oil tankers that have that have been in this part of the world. Oil tankers are much bigger. Even the smallest oil tanker is much bigger than the biggest ship that had ever sailed through there. Um, in 2000, I forget the year, I want to say eight or nine, uh, the Queen of the North BC ferry sank right on the route. It hit, ran into the ground in the middle of a squall and, and hit a rock and, and sank. And um, so it was just a really, you know, that was the part of this, project uh that captured my attention the most was you know a pipeline was grim enough but the idea of running oil tankers uh through this part of of the world uh that is that is so treacherous to to, to navigate um it it just seemed you know it was just awful and i i love this coast of, of bc um the first nations who were along that coastal route of course were also terrifically opposed and so uh, a friend of mine uh, Ilya Herb who's a photographer a brilliant nature and, and art photographer uh, happened to have bought a sailboat uh, right around this time and, and we were talking and we we're always looking for projects and we said oh why don't we let's do this let's go you got a sailboat now bro <laughs> let's go sail this route and, and check out where these these pipelines are, are, are sorry these oil tankers are, are going to go if, if this project goes ahead and and you know you'll take pictures and, and I'll I'll try to tell some stories. And 
And so we did it. And that turned into this book, The Oil Man and the Sea. And so it, it is partly a misadventure story because neither of us had ever sailed before and had we had no idea what we were doing. And, and we were really terrified, uh, which we were right to be terrified. But so a lot of it is and I'm the most mechanically inept person in the world. I surf, so I, I'm like pretty comfortable with water and ocean currents and tides. And I understand that. But uh, give me a wrench and I have no idea what to do with it and and ropes and knots and it was just like that's a whole separate world so you know which made it easy to poke fun of myself and and not make myself out to be any kind of a hero at all and I was more just sort of a bumbling buffoon trying not to sink the ship that we were on and and uh so we made it we sailed out of Victoria uh in sort of mid-spring uh, I think it was like the first of June or something and we went on this four and a half month sailing trip up the inside passage all the way to Kitimat and, and just spent months trundling around in our in our 40-foot sailboat and exploring this really incredible wilderness that um, it's called, you know, it's known as the Great Bear Rainforest. It's thousands of islands and inlets and this amphibious part of the world where the boundary between ocean and land and river um, all sort of merge and mm -hmm. become, you know, the salmon feed the forest in a very literal way. The salmon spawn up there and then their, you know, their carcasses are brought into the forest by the bears and the wolves and the eagles and then they fertilize the trees. And so that is where scientists realized they, they found these salmon-specific isotopes in the needles of these 1,500-year-old cedar trees. You know, they're like these, they, these forests are literally built of salmon and also herring and, and all the other fish that, that spawn there. And so the, just that, and it, it's also this this region of the world that, that I, you know, human, it, it has been touched by industry actually, but it was rebounding. You were talking earlier about the resilience of, of nature and, and it was on such display there. I mean, humpback whales are coming back to this part of the world. After having been hunted nearly to extinction by the 60s, humpbacks are now you know there's hundreds and hundreds and, and more each year are coming back to spawn there and so we were just surrounded by humpbacks orca whales as well are like that you know those of us who live in vancouver and in the salish sea the story we're always hearing is how the j-pod here the local orca population is 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 dying out and and it is and it, it's tragic but up north once you get north of vancouver island orcas are doing really really well up there and, and it's because industry has really subsided, you know, after, after overfishing and whaling and all this stuff, industry backed off. Logging is also backed off and is now co-managed with First Nations up there. So everything is, is, is doing a lot better and has been for 20 years or so. And in just that brief space of 20 years, everything just came bouncing back and booming back. And it was just like in our faces. We were there for the salmon spawn. The whales were everywhere. You know, it was just, I've had my closest encounters with humpbacks and orcas there. It was an unforgettable trip. And that's even before getting into the First Nations communities of Klemtu and Bella Bella and the Kittisu and Heisla up in Kitimat. We didn't make it to Haida Gwaii, unfortunately. That, that was beyond our sailing capacities, and, and fall came crashing in on us, and we didn't want to cross Hecate Strait, so that part eluded us, but they are a, a crucial part of that story. And it was really the First Nations opposition to this pipeline that killed it, and that was what ended up, you know, that story had, has a happy ending, that the, the pipeline did not go through. Those oil tankers are not going into that territory. And... 
but it was amazing this, you know, as we're going and, and we're being welcomed into these communities and, and people, you know, two white dudes, you know, bumbling into these First Nations communities who have every reason in the world to, to, to not trust white folks coming in and, and asking for help and tell us your stories. But they really opened their 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 lives to us and, and let us into their, you know, they literally fed us and invited us into their homes and, and showed us around their spectacular part of the world. And um, so it was a real honor. And it was, you know, there's lots of awkward moments, as you can imagine. For me, it was a big, a really big part of this story was just, you know, my relationship with the colonial history of mm-hmm. this country and being a white guy who, you know, journalism has its own extractive history of, of, of exploitation of, of the people whose stories were telling. And so that became pretty central to, to the journey and, and to the story that I wound up trying to tell with the oil man and the sea. And in, in some weird ways, the, the question of oil and, and pipelines and, and, and oil corporations sort of sank into the, into the background a little bit. And, and it really became about these people who have lived here for since the end of the last ice age and have an unbroken chain of, of, of stewardship of, of the land here and, and who have shaped literally the way that, that this ecosystem operates and, and looks and, and is to be lived in and, and their journey of having, you know, high, the, the Heltzuk of, of Bella Bella, there used to be, I believe pre-contact was around 30 or 40,000 I could be wrong about that number, but it was, you know, tens and tens of thousands. They dropped down to a, a hundred or 200 individuals um, at their lowest point after smallpox and, and colonialism and, and residential schools and everything. And, and they are bouncing back and have bounced back. And there's just this incredible vitality and resurgence of culture and, and ownership of the land. And now, you know, there's this, uh, the Guardian program. Um, anyways... Yeah, that became what the book was really about, and that, mm. that was what really lodged in my heart um, above all. And, and, you know, you try to do these things justice. You never quite do, but it, it, was, it was a really captivating journey for me personally in that way. Amazing. Speaks yeah. to the, as you had mentioned before, it speaks to the power of the so-called powerless. Yes. Right? Yes. You'd think in, yeah. a, in a situation where it's governments and huge corporations with countless lawyers and so true who have done whatever they wanted for as long as they could remember and didn't even think twice about these you know quote-unquote puny first nations what are they you know who cares about them they fucking stopped this thing they won they took down goliath man it was it was amazing it's so like literally of goosebumps just thinking about that i remember obviously the story was all over the news and Mm -hmm. hearing about that and and as you had described you know i'd forgotten the how treacherous that that stretch coming out of Kitimat is and you know the kind of um cavalier attitude of like well we'll just get these tankers in here and then out and kind of not really acknowledging the huge risk and that these people who this was and is their home and they were preserving it or hoping to preserve it against all this just stood up and said no yeah and it worked yeah like it is so inspiring yeah Speaking of hope, you know, yeah. uh, if that kind of story doesn't give you hope, uh, it sure does for me. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah. Amazing. Yeah, it is amazing. I, I thank you for sharing, sharing that story. I think it kind of encapsulates all that we're, 
we're hoping for for this world, whether it's the David versus Goliath, you know, it shows, like you said, saying no, you know, standing up against these big, the David, the David, the, the Goliaths of the world, you mm-hmm. know, the Davids can, can win and, um, you know, nature when given chance can be resilient and yes. there's so much there's as much to be hopeful for what's possible as there is to be concerned and i think if we can meet somewhere with some sense of urgency you know i think we can find our greatest potential and um uh, hopefully yeah. that we can get there i think that's the outlook that's 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 the way to approach it well should we should we do a few random fires before we wrap this uh combo up and let's do it you know, we'll we'll be, you know, searching the Googles for all the the stories that you you share in in the coming weeks and right. years, and you know, appreciate the work that you're you're doing in this world. I likewise, gentlemen, yeah. uh, it's a real honor to be on your on your pod, and uh, to be here chatting with you. It's a really beautiful opportunity. Thanks, Arnold. Thank you. Okay, I've got one to kick off, and I'm sure you've got a few up those sleeves, yours. Dean. Always. Okay, so as a as a journalist, as a writer, as uh, as a reader, I'm. I'm always curious about, you know, what, what people read. And usually we ask this question of, you know, what book have you gifted the most in your life? But I think with you, because of your, your, your history with, with writing, I'm kind of, it's a three part question. This is why we changed it from rapid to <laughs> random. Because it was not rapid. <laughs> All right. Okay. So it's around books. So gotta ask the right. gotta ask the author some book questions. Oh shit! Okay, so going from young Arno in your kind of adolescence yeah. to um, to kind of university Arno as as this person was being formed of who you are today to mm. now. So taking young young Arno, university Arno, and present Arno, what are some books from those stages of life that have been oh, most man. most informative and inspiring <laughs> to your journey? All right. So, you know, young Arno was definitely reading a whole bunch of fantasy and science fiction, as, as I said. So, you know, started with, you know, Narnia and Lord of the Rings and then into the Belgariad and Tad Williams, the, uh, the dragon bone chair. And I don't know if you remember those or the, Oh, I'm a fantasy nerd too. So yeah. yeah. So all, all that stuff, man, that, that was me. And back in those days, um, what was the last one that the wheel of time? I haven't read that. You haven't read that? And I heard it's a good show now. Yeah, they turned I don't know if it's good or bad, but they turned it into Into a show. show. That's right. Yeah, on Um, Amazon Prime. Yeah, that was my last. It was like this endless fantasy series that I read the first, you know, five or six books. And then it sort of saw me out. It was still going and it was kind of becoming interminable. And that was as I was leaving that phase of my literary existence and and so then I got into man then when I started reading you know quote unquote literature everything from I mean Carlos Castaneda let's not forget about him the, the, he was maybe a gateway drug because you know he was <laughs> literally you guys know Carlos Castaneda oh there? yeah he's he's the uh he's you know technic he sold his books as being nonfiction. Um, and he was an anthropologist who went down and became an apprentice to a yaki Indian sorcerer, basically. Teachings of Don and Juan. The teachings right? of Don Juan and, and, and a separate reality and tales of power. And, and, and it, it was, I'm quite sure, fictionalized, but it really captured a young man's imagination of, of 
you know, how to be a peaceful warrior in the world almost. Mm. And, and he was doing, you know, these, these shamanic apprentices, apprenticeship with, you know, that involved mushrooms and, and peyote and all of these things and having these mystical experiences. And, and it, it really captured, it was like the bridge between, okay, well, I'm never going to be like a dragon slaying magician, I guess, you know, <laughs> but maybe I can, you know, go into the desert and, and have these experiences and, and, and maybe some, there are some true anyways. So that was, you know, my gateway into then, um, I would say what, as I started reading what we think of as novels and, and, and literature that, that captures the respect of, of adults these days, you know, Hemingway, of course, the sun also rises in his, 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 uh, economy of language and his, his, you know, that guy was a journalist who had seen everything and lived through wars and, and wrote about war and, and love and, and travel and international affairs in a way that was just so captivating and, um, again was a real man's man so i think uh, you know speaks to an adolescent you know post-adolescent 19 year old arno uh was really you know that captured my my imagination gabriel garcia marquez uh magic magical realism 100 years of solitude was this book that we had had in my basement all through childhood and i remember it just seemed so boring and awful all when i was a kid and then i don't know when i would have been about 19 or 20 when i read it and it was just like, holy shit, this is, you can write this way. This stuff can happen. Mm. You know, there's a character who everywhere she goes, she's followed by a cloud of butterflies and, and uh, the opening lines, you know, many years later, Colonel Aureliano Buendia would remember that time his grandfather took him to sea ice. Um, oh no, many years later when he was facing the firing squad, Colonel Aureliano, anyways, that opening line is just seared into my brain and, yeah. and it captured, you know, now my daughter who's six years old is watching Encanto, mm. uh, which some readers with kids will, will, you know, it's set in this Colombian village and magical things happen. And, and it, it brings me back to, to Gabriel Garcia Marquez. Um, so he was, you know, and Salman Rushdie as well, really, I loved his novels and Salman Rushdie was also inspired by, and sort of a, you know, a, a you know, lives on the same branch, I think, in some ways as, as Gabriel Garcia Marquez. So those were some of the classical guys. Um, Edward O. Wilson was this beautiful scientist who writes about popular, who sort of popularizes scientific, scientific images um, and concepts. Those were some of the you know, who else was I reading? I remember I read Moby Dick. I, I went to University of Victoria. I was living on the ocean. And so Same I read Moby thing. Dick sitting out, on, you know, I lived in a house that was on the water at that point, And I just was like coming from Alberta, you know, it was the first time I had lived on the ocean. And, and so it was new to me. And, and, and reading Moby Dick then and there, I remember it was, I think you got to be sort of a young person <laughs> to, to really get into <laughs> Moby Dick because it's quite a long book. Uh, maybe that's not true, but... But um, again, just capturing the human condition with an incredible adventure story and super, you know, it's a very poetic, beautiful tale. Um, so those were some of those books that I read at that point of my life. And then I'm trying to think, lately, what have I read? You know, lately I'm, I'm kind of a news addict, so I, I tend to... I, I really consume a lot of current affairs and news and, and long form. I read The New Yorker and The Atlantic and The Walrus and, you know, the opinion essays and The Globe and Mail is, is really most of, of what I consume. I also read um, 
fiction that I love, like Patrick DeWitt. I don't know if you guys ever read him. Mm. The Sisters Brothers, French Exit. Like I just love that guy's books. They're 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 such they're beautifully told and they're it's very escapist for me. And um, a burning was a book. I forget the author, but she it's about takes takes place in India and it's about you know a, a kid who grows up in the slums and escaping the slums. And right now I'm reading a book called Breath, a nonfiction book called Breath, uh, about uh, it's the lost science of an ancient art about the importance of of breathing and and breathing through your nose and James and, Nestor. <laughs> yeah, that's right. That's yeah, yeah. It's 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 good. It's it's blowing my mind. And I've been um, uh, I've been sleeping with my mouth taped. You're doing that. Month. Yeah, my friend who gave it to me. Really? She said it's she's, a game she's taping her mouth shut. And I I'm, swear to God, it's I'm, a game changer. I'm not quite there yet, but it's working for you. Hey? Oh yeah. Right. I didn't think I'd be able to do it, but it's like it's a game changer. Yes. I couldn't believe it. All After right. like a week, I was like, "Oh, this yeah. What did it change? How what, Let what alone, well, well, my wife is a lot happier because I stopped right, snoring. Right, less snoring. Uh-huh. But uh, so, you you know, the sleep tracker, whatever heart rate monitor thing that I wear, uh-huh. I look at the, from the last month to this month since I've been doing it and literally like hours per night more of like deep sleep deep and REM sleep. sleep. It's wow. unbelievable. And I used to never dream. Mm. And since I've started doing it, I dream every night. It's bizarre. I was like, oh my gosh. And then let alone just like, waking up and feeling infinitely more rested yeah. and you actually tape your mouth shut tape it shut like with tape with k-tape like, yeah <laughs> yeah honestly uh, and i had i had like zero yeah my I, friend has the same uh, feedback yeah, yeah i so. had like zero anxiety some people are like it's it causes a lot of anxiety but like it's okay i've never try. i literally have for some never slept better all right. So, and I read that book last summer and I kind of been toying with the idea. And then I was like, okay, I'm just going to try it. Yeah. I'm just halfway through it right now. So, so there you go. Yeah, and I tried his running, that. running practice too, where you just like breathe a little bit while you're running is nuts. That's that. what's crazy. He talks about how much better performance there is if you breathe through your nose. And I remember like when I was a kid, I was an athlete and, and we would be encouraged to do that. Yeah. And I could, it just seems impossible. I'm like, my nostrils would slam shut. As a, <laughs> yeah, you know, and I'm like, how do you, it's like, I'm, my mouth, you know, I pant like everybody. When yeah. They yeah. Things are, but yeah. there is a way to do it. There's somehow, a way. So I'll find out. So that's good. But yeah. Give it a try. All right. Yeah. <laughs> okay. To wrap up the book part is, is there a book that you've gifted the most in your life? Uh, no, is the short answer. Yeah. Yeah. I can't think of a Just book that whatever, I Whatever's on the... Uh, yeah. Whatever is like late, most recently caught my fancy is... Yeah. I, okay. I don't have one that I love particularly it. stands out. Do you know what you got? Cool. I would say you touched on it a little bit in our conversation, but maybe like you could specifically dial some in. Who who would you say are some people that are really leading the way in like resisting climate change or maybe they're creative in their approach to, to raising awareness or... Oh, yeah. Um... So who is that? Well, AOC, Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, I think she is this person who just like cuts through all the bullshit in a way that is like inspiring and fresh and edgy. She's not, you know, she's like got a sense of humor and she knows how to like take down internet trolls and, and can be inspiring and raps, you know, she really unites that message of social justice with climate justice in a way that I think is, that's really crucial and central. So I take great inspiration from, from her, uh, the sunrise movement in the U S is this, is this extraordinary, uh, activist movement that is, you know, youth generation led and they're, they, they help get progressive politicians like AOC elected and then also do direct action, you know, civil disobedience stuff. Um, so who else is out there? 
Oh gosh, I mean Seth Klein, who is a Vancouver writer, uh, Naomi Klein's brother, actually. Although one should just say that he is Seth Klein, and he's an author <laughs> and a, and an and a activist and a, and a thinker himself, who, who's, who's who's quite inspirational. Um, of course, I'm drawing blanks at this particular moment, but it's always hard on the spot. David David Roberts is an American uh, climate journalist who. Who, his analysis and his writing on this stuff, I think, is also really spot on. Leah Stokes is another American amazing journalist. Uh, Naomi Klein is herself, you know, this titanic voice and presence mm-hmm. in, in this global discussion. Um, I, I do think Stephen Guilbeau, I, I take great heart from him, our current Minister yeah. of Environment and Climate Change. I wish him luck. I've inter- I interviewed him when when he was running in 2019 to, to join the liberals before he, he was a politician and he was trying to become one and I had a really fascinating conversation with him and he struck me as a guy of, of integrity. Um, so there's him. Sweet. Yeah. There's others who I'm, sh- I'm going to walk away from this. Why did I think of that? <laughs> yeah. How could I forget? But I think there's so many, you know, yeah. Yeah. which is encouraging. The, the takeaway is like, as soon as you start paying attention to this, you realize there is this entire ecosystem that is, deep and wide and rich yeah. of thousands of people who are in, engaged in this struggle. Yeah. Amazing. That's cool. Are there any documentaries if people are, if there are, you know, flight bulbs are turning on right now, are there any documentaries that you recommend for climate change or just otherwise that have inspired you? You know, I would actually recommend a, a couple of books, uh, which are nonfiction books by uh, an Indian writer named Amitav Ghosh. And he's a really well-known, he's, he was a novelist, is a novelist. He's written, you know, uh, The Glass Palace, uh, Sea of Poppies, was, became famous for his fiction. Um, and then in 26, 2016, wrote a book called The Great Derangement, which is a book of nonfiction. And he's asking, at the heart of it is, well, why has fiction ignored climate change mm. until now? That Why does any book that, you know, why does a work of fiction that, discusses climate change suddenly becomes science fiction or it's not you know those are not the books that are willing winning pulitzer prizes or booker prizes um and he includes himself in in that critique and and then but it becomes this like really marvelous uh meditation on why that why that has happened and and uh, a sort of a, a call to see this earth as a living creature and it's it's pretty like a surprising unconventional book and he's followed it up with another book that just came out a year ago uh, called The Nutmeg's Curse. Okay. And he looks into the history. It starts with how nutmeg was kind of like almost the original oil, you know, the spice that the, that was worth, you know, one little nutmeg. I don't know what you call What do you call a piece of nutmeg? It's not a piece. It's like, do you know? Uh, it's like that. Anyways, like, like the kernel of nutmeg that you pick from a tree, you could buy a castle with it in the year 1600. Oh, wow. You know, it was worth that much. And so, and nobody really knew where it came from. Like the trade, there are so many links in the chain of commerce that everybody was always trying to figure out where are the islands in the East Indies that nutmeg grows. And then the Dutch East India Company found them and they murdered every single person who lived there and tried to turn these islands into uh, basically nutmeg farms and the saga of that and how the nutmeg itself fought back against this colonization. Oh, wow. And and so he really flips these scripts in this beautiful way, uh, Amitav Ghosh, the author of, of Seeing the Earth as 
a living sentient creature that has as much agency as people do and we might think that we're colonizing it but the very things that we think we're colonizing are also you know colonizing us and so he he, he paints these 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 pictures in a really inspiring way makes me think of the book of hopi have you read that one no i haven't read that oh it's really good it's uh by the hopi indigenous uh peoples of north america and i guess uh, you know, of, of the world because the, their theory is the, the kind of the Pangaea world all started as one, but they kind of speak to, they give this uh, example that, you know, when you cut yourself, you you bleed and then you get a scab. And, uh-huh. you know, if you cut a tree, it, it saps and that sap will eventually harden up. And they kind of explain climate change as, as just that, you know, we're, inflicting this pain on the on planet earth and mm-hmm. and all of these natural quote unquote, these these natural disasters are the earth kind of trying to heal itself of the irritants that are being created by us yeah um, yeah it's a really cool. good book that sounds amazing yeah it's not too too long of a read it's kind of, book read, of reads like a story the book of hopi yeah uh, Dina, you got any more before we close her out? I think we can, think we can close her. Okay. Shall we? Take her home. All right. All right. <laughs> so Arno, we really appreciate you being here with us and sharing your stories and your wisdom and inspiration along the way. And uh, it's exactly what we wanted with, with our podcast is to have really meaningful conversations with, with great people. Um, and we call that a little more good because that's what we like wanted to see happen in the world as a, as a way, a kind of the offshoot of this, of these conversations so that people would take it and change or grow or do something good with it. We always like to ask our guests, what does that statement, what does that phrase mean to you? A little more good. Yeah. I mean, you said it I, to me, I, I hear it, you know, injecting some goodness into the, into the public's imagination and spirit and and soul. And I I think that's what you guys are doing with this podcast. Yeah. So thanks for letting me be a a part of that injection. Yes. You're welcome. Thank you. All right. Thanks. What a pleasure. All right. All right, Dean. You ready to go be Captain Planet? (laughs) Yeah. Combine our powers. Well, it's like, it's like, uh, you know, adventure stories mixed with, yeah, saving the planet, right? Caring for the environment, seeing, you know, being realistic about the situation we're in, the what we're facing, the peril, but then also being equally realistic about the promise. Like, we're not, we're not incapable of change. We're not incapable of, like, positively impacting and affecting what's happening all around us with climate change, so... I think it's incredibly empowering to just immerse yourself with these conversations and these books and, and these people because I think it gives us the the cues and the empowerment to be able to take the small steps to make these changes personally. Yeah. And if we can all make small changes, these can have in a macro sense immense immense change on, on our planet. So that's right. I'm optimistic. I'm hopeful. There's a lot of amazing people doing amazing things. And I think the answers are all there. We just need to, you know, tune in and, uh, you know, tune out a little less. That's right. That's right. So always appreciative of our guest, Arno, for sharing his stories and his time with us. And of course, for you, the listener, thank you so much for your time and your attention. Uh, if, uh, if you enjoy what you hear on A Little More Good, we would just love for you to like 
or uh, give us a follow review on Apple or Spotify, wherever you listen to the pod, tell a friend, share it on your stories. We just really, really appreciate any and all um, likes, comments, all that kind of stuff. It means a lot to know that uh, stuff resonated with, with all of you out there. So huge thank you for each one of you and be sure to check out plantedlife.com. Grab your tickets for the Planted Expo Vancouver happening June 4th and 5th this coming weekend. As I say, if you're listening in real time, you're not going to want to miss it. Scott Jurek, fun run, fun times. It's going to be great. Hope to see you all there. All right. Peace. Peace. Ever catch yourself eating the same flavorless dinner three days in a row? Dreaming of something better? Well. HelloFresh is your guilt-free dream come true, baby. It's me, Kiki Palmer. Let's wake up those taste buds with hot, juicy pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Mm. Hello Fresh. Stop dreaming of all the delicious possibilities and dig in at HelloFresh.com. Let's get this dinner party started. <laughs> 